So, hello everyone, glad to see you, uh, but I already said that. So, if you've uh, been around Providence any stretch of time, you know that typically what we do is we go through books of the Bible, and we go through verse by verse, and chapter by chapter, and we typically do that in the fall, and in the spring, and then in the summer, uh, maybe you've noticed that we kind of take breaks in the long-running series, and uh, in the past we've done psalms and things like that. Uh, typically at the end of the year, uh, in Advent, we'll do some kind of different things and take breaks. And so what we're starting tonight, as it is summer, summer is upon us, um, is we're going to look at the core convictions that have seemed to kind of look like this church and has flavored this church. And so what we're going to do for the next several weeks is walk through seven core convictions that are from a stream or a flavor of faith, not a denomination, but a flavor of faith called Anabaptism. And we're going to look at these convictions. We're going to talk about these convictions. We're going to talk about some history of these folks that are Anabaptists. And we're going to kind of sort out, well, what does this mean for us? Because if you were paying attention when we got a new website and it looks all neat and great, you might have noticed these things popped up on there too. So I thought, hey, maybe it's good that we should talk about these things and hear from you guys, and we're going to talk about it in missional communities for the next several weeks. Uh, we're going to have a chance for you guys to dialogue, and we're all going to learn these things together. And uh, this should not change so much our day-to-day, -day, and we're going to talk about why that is here at the outset in just a minute. But this is simply another way that our theology informs our practice, okay? How many of you have been in the members class? This should be members of the church, yes? Have you heard this phrase, our theology informs our practice? See, a lot of times what happens is we say, hey, this is a really neat thing that this church over here is doing, or this is a really neat thing that we ought to be doing, so let's just do a bunch of neat stuff, and just the rest will just sort of sort itself out. So one of the things when this church was started 11 years ago was what would it look like, rooted in the scriptures and rooted in the person of Jesus, what if we decided the why, the how, and that influenced what we do? So you'll know, if you've been around Providence also, our core practices. What are our core practices? Believe, belong, bless. Believe, belong, bless. That's right. The three B's to success, to a healthier, wealthier you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> these have not changed, but these are practices. These are things we do. Our convictions that you have on a handout in front of you are the why and the how that fuels how we believe, how we belong, how we bless. Okay? So we're going to spend some time looking at these things, and I trust that the more we walk and talk and look at all this, you're going to say, wow, yeah, dude, this is us. This has been us. This looks like us. This smells like us. This is what we're about. And so I hope that you'll see that here in a little bit and as we go on throughout the series. So before we talk about some stories about the Anabaptists, uh, many of you know part of my story, and part of my story is that in 2006, my wife and I visited this church. We visited this church when, of course, we were in the theater and uh, the gallery, 
And uh, we were really blown away because we felt called to be a part of a kind of church that looked like and smelled like Providence. And it wasn't the first time we visited because the first time we visited, y'all were having a communal meal in the gallery. And if you'll recall, there was windows in the gallery. And so Amy and I have got our little Bibles and we're dressed in our Sunday best. And we walk past the glass and we say, oh, there's about 60 people sitting down and eating together. Let's try next Sunday. And we turned around and we got in our car and left because we're people. We are people persons, but that was way too much for us. So we came back. And it was probably the second or third time we heard something, I heard something that really fundamentally changed how I look at the culture that I live in. And maybe some of you old timers will recall the difference between confessional Christianity and functional Christianity. Does this ring some bells? Let me tell you what confessional Christianity looks like. Confessional Christianity for me looks like showing up at a vacation Bible school when I was 10 years old. I had grown up in an Episcopal church and I had been around Jesus and liked Jesus and drank wine uh, that was called Jesus and I lit candles with a white robe and I did all this. But when I was 10 years old, I went to a vacation Bible school and I didn't want to go to hell. And so I confessed Jesus as Lord. And I was baptized as a 10-year-old, not just a eight-day-old. And I confessed Jesus as Lord. And many people in my circle growing up in the Bible Belt confessed Jesus as Lord. Every year you see the statistics that talks about people that confess that they believe in God, that they believe that Jesus died for my sins. And these are the sorts of things, this is the air we breathe and this is the water we live in. Growing up when I uh, was in ministry before coming to Providence, uh, I was a pastor to young adults and I would sit down with them and I would ask them, hey, what does your life with Jesus look like? And they say one of two things. Well, they say, well, I hadn't been to church in a long time, if that's what you're asking. I said, that's not what I'm asking. I said, what is your life with Jesus like? And the other response that I would get most often would be, well, I was saved when I was eight. And it was this question of, how do I become a Christian? How do I believe the right things? But the difference and the subtle difference in, in this between confessional and functional is these beliefs are things that we can have in our heads and Facebook pages, but actually make little difference in the way we live our life. And what was foundational for me, having grown up in the church, having grown up in a family who is also Catholic, who went to Easter and Christmas Mass, and they confessed the Apostles' Creed, and they confessed these things, but really, when it came down to brass tacks, it didn't make much difference in their life. They loved Jesus, but they worshiped him at a distance. And, and this confessional versus functional language really keyed me into something. And that something is this. A lot of times we can worship Jesus and not follow Jesus. He can be worshiped and not followed. It's a lot easier to hold some beliefs than it is when it gets down to actually walking in the way that Jesus walked. And our churches in, in this part of the world are filled with people who know the right things, say the right things, but when it push comes to shove, they really don't have much relationship with Jesus outside of the phrase, well, he died for my sins. But if you stop there, if you stop it, he died for my sins, and I can get a ticket into heaven, really, what good or bearing does that have on my life 
And that belief functionally, if the only thing that matters is when I die, I get to go to the pearly gates. So what I'm not saying is that it's not enough to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus, save me, okay? That confession is vital to the Christian experience. But if that confession is an actual confession that has taken root deep inside your life, you're going to find yourself walking in the way in which he walked. And that means you're going to screw up. That means you're going to fall. That means you're going to sin. Because when you make that confession, you don't just immediately get zapped up to heaven or whatever. Because if really, if it was all about going to heaven when you die and saying the right things, then dude, why do I want to hang around for another 60 years? That sucks. So this difference between confessional and functional. So this is the, my story and how I was introduced to Providence and how I stalked Providence over the years until I get to come up here and now say crazy things like confessional versus functional here. It's a wild story. But this was so foundational to me, and I think that this was foundational for you guys in the church, especially in the context in which we live. And so I want to tell you about some stories of some guys in the 1500s in the context in which they lived and in which they lived in the West, in Europe and uh, the um, Scandinavian countries. The church was fused with the state. And just like we're born into America and we get our birth certificate and we're stamped as citizens, we find that these people were born into the Catholic church and they're baptized into the Catholic church, and you had widespread cultural, or should I say confessional, Christianity. And for a myriad reasons, these issues so disturbed a little guy named Martin Luther, you've all heard of, and on October 31st in 1517, he nailed, and I'm going to get this word right, okay? Y'all listen up. He nailed his 95 Theses, theses, the plural of thesis. I'm trying not to say feces. Everybody's still looking at me like I'm crazy. He nailed these to the door of a church. He was a monk. He was within the Catholic church. And he said, these are protestations I have against this system, this confessional versus functional. And so what happens is it starts, a, um, it starts a firestorm and it starts several other like-minded people uh, saying, yes, I think we do need to return to Scripture. We do need to return to this way of following Jesus, okay? And so what happens then, there's a man named Ulrich Zwingli. That is an awesome name. Who's going to name their son Zwingli? Some, or, or Ulrich. That's cool. So this guy was in Switzerland, okay? There's a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, and he was a guy that said, yes, amen, and he was looking to reform the church. October 31st wasn't just Halloween, it was Reformation Day, and it began this, this, uh, this schism that we still feel today. We've got hundreds of denominations. We've still got the Roman Catholic Church, but we've got the Protestant denominations. And it was all started with those 95 things. And one of these guys, Ulrich Zwingli, was in Switzerland, and he was a scholar, and he was a reformer. He was hip to all this stuff, and he drew to him two students, okay? Here's my other names. Conrad Grable, you'll see it up here on a slide in just a little bit, not yet, and Felix Mons. These are awesome names. Where are these awesome names today? 
Well, they're not in Texas, but Conrad Grable and Felix Mons are two guys that were students of Zwingli, and they were saying, yes, amen, Reformation, rock and roll, let's do this, punk rock and all this. And so what happens is they're, they're meeting with Zwingli, okay? They're meeting with Zwingli, and they say, you know what? It is pretty lame how all these infants are baptized into the state church. It is pretty weird how when we're tithing to the church, really what we're doing is functionally just another tax to the state, And then they said, wait a minute, this thing with Lord's Supper, I'm not sure that I'm really hip to all that. And so this, and among many other things, they start to dialogue about. And these guys, Conrad Grable and Felix Mons, students of Zwingli's, were saying, dude, you know what? It's not just enough to confess and believe that believers, adults, might should be baptized because that's what it seems to be in the New Testament. It's we need to function in this way. Now, this is where it began to get tense because Zwingli was a member of the city council in Switzerland. And you can believe things, but when it starts to rub elbows with your actual life, it gets tough. If you're on the city council and you want those tithes to keep coming in, you can't say no tithes. And so this guy, Conrad Grable, and this guy, Felix Mons, when it came down in particular to this issue of infant baptism, they said, we're going to take this to practice And if we got babies, we're going to withhold them. So if you're fused with the church and state and you're maintaining the confessional Christianity and you're baptizing citizens into God's church and all of a sudden people say, "Uh uh-uh, not baby Felix, not baby Ulrich, that's treason. And so what happens is on a snowy night, January 20, let me write it down, 25th? 21st, this is why you write things down, folks. January 21st of 1525. So the Reformation had begun in 1517 and then 1525. Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock. Let's cut down two quick slides real quick. These three men met together in the house of Mr. Mons, who is actually a descendant of Ryan Gosling, He's an ancient ancestor, I mean, of Ryan Gosling with long hair and a cool beard. These three men met in a home, and they were meeting because they've been feeling they need to separate. They need to go further than the Reformation has gone thus far. And they met for fasting and for prayer. And this guy, George Blaurock, who, get this, his nickname was Bluecoat. That last name, see, I knew it. I knew it right here, Harlow. This guy looked up and he started shaking his head. I knew Blue Coat, this guy. Listen, Blue Coat, his, he was a priest in the church. And he was there. He was this big old gruff guy that probably looked about like this man. You need to start calling him Har, uh, Blue Coat. That name, Blaurock, means Blue Coat. They gather and they're fasting and they're praying. And then this is what happens. January 21st of 1525, Conrad uh, Grable is kind of leading this meeting, and George Blaurock stands up and he says, I want to be baptized based on the confession that Jesus is my Lord. This is a guy who is a priest in the state church, business as usual, who had baptized infants before him, and this dude stands up and he says, man, I've been reading this Bible, and man, I think that maybe this is what I'm after. And so Conrad Grable baptizes George Bluecoat. And then the rest of the about dozen or so gathered in that house were baptized that night. Okay? 
It should be noted that it was winter in Switzerland. So they were baptized in the home. And I think it's important to note that they weren't probably dunked at this time. They were just figuring this out. And so they're knelt and they're baptized as believers, as people. And this is this functional way that they separate not just from the state church, but now from the Reformation. And so was born Anabaptism, okay? They formed a group called the Swiss Brethren, these men. And what these three guys did was go from door to door proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and that he demands not just confessors, but watch, followers, And so here's where we get to find kind of the nuts and bolts. These men were so convinced and convicted that it informed their practice. And they went from town to town and house to house, and they were preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching, and they were baptizing. And so you'll note here that their dates, they have their birth dates, and then they have their death dates. And you'll notice they're all kind of in the same wheelhouse. Well, these men that are taking what's called the Radical Reformation, so there's the Reformation, but these guys are taking it a step further. Conrad dies of the plague after about 20 months in jail because he can't go baptizing against the state and against the church. Felix Mons, in 1527, gets led out, uh, out of jail. All of these three guys are sticking around in jail. He gets led out to an island, And he gets a bar right here between his legs. He's tied at his feet at this bar in between his knees and his hands. And he gets tossed into the sea. They said, you're baptizing people. We'll show you a baptism. George Blaurock, old blue coat, gets burned at the stake in 1529. He came around. He kept talking about these things, these issues he had with the church and calling it into function. And these three men, who were the early leaders of this Anabaptist movement, who would baptize several thousand people in their little communities that would spread into Austria and Germany and these sorts of things, these guys, along with the several thousand Anabaptists they baptized, will be persecuted, killed, run out of town, quieted, put down wherever they run into because not only is the Catholic Church against them, the Reformed churches are against them also. So they get this name, Anabaptist, which is not anti-Baptist, Pastor Bud, who told me via email, why are we doing an anti-Baptist series? (laughs) These churches and these people that were persecuting and killing them called them Anabaptists. And Anna means re- And Baptist means what? Coffee. Baptist. What do you think, man? I mean, this is easy. Baptist. Rebaptizers. They were called rebaptizers. Why were they called rebaptizers? Because you were supposed to be baptized here and you're baptized as big people and this is an issue. So Anabaptists didn't so much like that name because they thought, no, dude, I'm just following Jesus and this is how I'm doing that and this is how I'm functioning according to my theology. Really, this is the only baptism that counts. Okay, so what does this all have to do with us? What do these old guys have to do with us? Because this movement, this flavor of theology that we're going to explore over the next several weeks, you're going to hear more stories in history. This probably more than any other night we're going to get into. What does all this have to do with us today? 
Because this movement would, would give birth to what we know today as the Amish people, the Mennonite people. There's a guy that comes after these guys named Minno Sims and Simons, and he comes and he forms the Mennonites. In Canada and in the eastern part, there's a denomination called the Brethren in Christ or Other Brethren or Hutterites. There are all these different people, all these different denominations, and they all look very different from us, right? But when we look at the heart of Anabaptism, these men who went town to town who didn't have the chance to formalize as a denomination, didn't have a chance to write a whole lot down because they were uneducated, unschooled, in jail, on the run type of dudes, this sort of theology, this sort of conviction gets passed down not only in these denominations, but in this kind of spirit. And at the very center of it is this idea of following Jesus. Not just worshiping Jesus at a distance, not just confessing Jesus, but shouldn't we give a hoot about his life? Shouldn't we give a hoot about our day-to-day life here? Now, all churches are about that. But in Anabaptism in particular, they have Jesus right in the center. They take him out of the margins and put him right in the center. Jared, would you go back one picture before this? Why we're talking about Anabaptism is because of this. This is in the Jason and Becky Knight's backyard. Does anyone have a clue what's going on here? Yes? That's it. So the clothesline was around when this house was built, and the clothesline remained, and somewhere along the way, the tree got planted and the tree grew up around it. So why we're looking at these guys and these stories and these flavors and this issue of following Jesus and these convictions is because we are a church who just happened, I think, to grow up around this stream of faith, around this stream of people. If you've sat and you've read those convictions, you might say, yeah, this sounds like us. Yeah, this feels a little right. And it's just because we woke up one day and realized, wow, there's this weird little stream that happened in the 1500s. A lot of them got killed and sent away and didn't write a bunch of lofty books. But there's something about their spirit, something about the way they do things that really kind of seems and smells and looks like providence. So that's where we're after. And that's the story. That's kind of a way of anchoring to a place in history, anchoring to a place in history where we can tap back and say, hey, when you're new to our church, it might just be a little way to have a business card to say, this is kind of how we look. This is kind of how it informs how we do what we do. That's what we're doing. Let's uh, skip ahead and let's look at the first core conviction, okay? Y'all with me? Y'all like the story of the three Anabaptist amigos? I didn't want to drop a whole bunch of history all in one. There's a lot of little facets and silly stories that we're going to look at. And uh, I just want us to get down now to, uh, that stuff's very important. I just want to get now into, what does that mean for us today? So if you've got a handout on your way in, I'd encourage you to look at that. In just a minute, we're going to open up our Bibles. But first, I want us to look at this Anabaptist core conviction number one. This is from the Anabaptist Network which is a network in the United Kingdom, in England and Ireland and Scotland, and it's a loose group of folk who have gone back to the stories of guys like Conrad and Felix and George 
and they find these things, and they found that they've grown up around it too. So we are not officially linked up with the Anabaptist network. I should say that. We're not giving money to them, and they ain't giving money to us. And uh, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you guys are a part of a denomination, okay? I also want to tell you that uh, a lot of scholarly debate goes on as to whether Baptists of the Southern or otherwise persuasion, a lot of debate goes on as to whether they can trace their roots back to these Anabaptists. And most folks will tell you no. Because when you start to look at some of these convictions and some of the ways the Anabaptists live their lives today, it looks a little bit different. I'm not saying right or wrong, I'm just saying it doesn't mean all of a sudden y'all are all Baptists. Hello, welcome. You're Baptists because we baptize you as a grown-up, but that's it. Conviction number one, okay? You with me? Jesus is our example, our teacher, our friend, our redeemer, and Lord. Let's stop here. When I talk about confessional, this is what I mean, that many of us stop and start with redeemer, okay? This is what I'm saying. This confessional thing is like, you know, Jesus saved me, and that's enough. I've got my life, thank you. I'll just carry on. That's all right. Or you hear it in songs. Jesus was born to die. Well, what happened to the 30-some years of his life, the three years of ministry? Anabaptists resoundingly come back and say, uh, in these types of creeds even, where it skips, you know, he was born of the Virgin Mary, s- then watch, suffered under Pontius Pilate and crucified and buried and raised from the dead. Anabaptists say, wait, 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 wait. I think that whole bit about his life is a big deal. It's, it's important. And he, when he talks about the kingdom and he shows us the kingdom, this is important. And so in our conviction, right at the top, who is Jesus because we want to keep him at the center. This church wants to keep him at the center. He is our example. Isn't it funny that it starts with example? And it starts with example because we want to be people who not just worship, right, but what? Follow. He is our teacher. He is alive and he has things to show us how to live. He is our friend. He is our redeemer. And he is our Lord. And beyond that, he says he is the source of our life. The central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like letting our theology and our ideas of who Jesus is and how Jesus does things, shouldn't that inform how we do things? I think I've said from here before, I'm a big documentary buff, and there's one documentary about a church ministry that happens to be in our Fairburg around these parts, and they're doing something called a hell house or a house of judgment. And, and I'm a big Halloween guy and, you know, scary stuff and all this. Well, what some of these people do is they have this big house of judgment and they have this big ministry and they have crazy, scary stuff and they want to scare kids and they want to get them into heaven. And their motives, God bless them, are to save kids. This is great but what I, what I just, I stopped, I paused, I laughed out loud because they asked one of the dudes and they said, man, do you think Jesus would stage violent attacks and abortions and to scare kids, to make it, conf- do you think Jesus would do this? And why don't you just withhold your question, your answer rather, because this guy's question was beautiful. He says, uh, hmm, 
Nah, dude, probably not. And I say, then you stop right there. You're done. If Jesus wouldn't do this, you don't need to do this, okay? Now, I'm not saying no houses of judgment. I'm not casting judgment on house of judgment. I'm saying this guy that has sunk thousands of dollars every year, who is the leader, says, no, Jesus wouldn't do this. Anyway, I got to go over here and do this real quick. This is hilarious. Jesus is the source of our life. Colossians 1 says, in him all things hold together. It also says that in him is the image of the invisible God. We talk about in this church, you want to know what God is like? He looks just like Jesus, okay? And so he is the source of our life. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul says. Hebrews says he's talked about prophets, he's talked and spoken in the scriptures, but now he's spoken through son. We have to start and stop with who Jesus is because we live and move and he's the reference point. If you find yourself with the WWJD bracelet, what would, what would Jesus do? It's not even enough to just say, well, he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't do that. It's what Jesus are you talking about? And this is where Anabaptism and bringing Jesus to the center looks like. Because it's not just what he would do, it's how he would do it. And so in order to get into this, you've got to look at who Jesus is. You have to see him when he heals people. You have to see him talking to a single adulterous woman by himself at a well. You have to see him riding whatever it is in the dirt in front of a naked woman who's just been dragged and ready to be killed, you have to see him, look at her in the eye, look at the people with the stones and say, okay, whoever is perfect, go ahead, fire away. I'm waiting. You have to see Jesus do this. You can sit here and believe all the right things about God and you can be a miserable, miserable angry, just nasty person. Can Christians be nasty? Can Christians have all the right stuff they believe? Can Christians have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed? But if it doesn't make a lick of difference in your dang life, you might be worshiping Jesus, but you ain't following him. He has got to be right at the center. He has got to be our theology and our reference point for our faith, what we believe, and our lifestyle, how we function, and for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. Here's a fun thing. If Jesus were to protest something, would he say fags? I Call it what you want. That does not look like Jesus. And that's like no-brainer, bottom of the barrel. Our engagement with society and the way we gather together, he has a lot to say about the church because the scriptures say the church is his body. We need to look to Jesus. And here's where it meets the road. Because of all that, we are committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him. Church, are we committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him? Here's the trick. I can slip into the way of just believing all the right things, but does it make any lick of difference here in my life? 
Let's look at the quote. This is an Anabaptist. If I were to put a business card uh, of, of what is Anabaptism, what most scholars and books, you're going to find this quote. It's a guy named Hans Denk. Again, such awesome names. I had two girls, and Amy wouldn't let me name her Menno or Denk or Hans or Felix. CPS wouldn't let me name her any of those things anyway. <laughs> Listen to this. No one can truly know Jesus unless he follows him in his life. No one may follow him unless he has first known him. You can't just go do a bunch of stuff and, yeah, in the name of Jesus. You can't go killing people in the name of Jesus because you've got to know Jesus. He wouldn't kill nobody. For whoever thinks he belongs to Christ must walk the way that Christ walked. This is 1 John. This is the New Testament. These are the men who took these stories and didn't just want to be confessional. They wanted to be functional. We are a church who doesn't just want to be confessional. We want to be functional. We want to look to Jesus and follow him closely. Disciples aren't just people who worship him at a distance. We're going to see that disciples are people that follow Jesus closely. What does Jesus say about following as we start to wind down? Look, if you have a Bible, in Luke chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. There's one in front of you, if you'd care to open it. We're going to hip-hop a little bit around. We're going to look here in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. Peter, a guy named Peter, has just said, watch, the confession that Jesus is Lord. Peter just said the very right thing. You are God's Messiah, God's Savior. Peter said it, hit the nail on the head, and then Jesus says this. Verse 23, Whoever wants to be my disciple must first deny themselves and take up their cross, Luke says, daily, and follow me. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Here's the trick. Jesus, to follow him, means you have to follow him through the cross. So here's the guy, here's the guy, here's the guy, Peter, that said the right thing. And let's follow Peter's life. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up the cross, and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be crucified. What does Peter then say? Yeah, right, dude. Here he had the right answer, but at, in some moments, just like us, he doesn't always get it right. But he's called to follow Jesus. So then if you look later on, follow Peter's life, when Jesus is going to be arrested, just as he said, just as he proclaimed, okay? They're in the garden. You've seen the movies. You've read the stories. You've heard it preached. And Judas comes and he does what? He kisses him. And all these guards are there with clubs and swords. And Jesus says, dude, you think I'm going to launch a revolution? Why are you doing all this? So Peter, who knew the right answers, who heard the call to follow him through suffering, through the cross, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say one of them. But John outs the dude. It says, Simon Peter took a sword, dude, and he chopped off. And he even names the guard, too. He chopped off the dude's ear. And Jesus says, oh, nope. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he took and he healed the guy's 
ear. Jesus didn't just say the right things. Peter didn't just hear the right things. When Peter kind of messes up, Jesus shows him the way to follow, right? Jesus, this is awesome, he practices what he preaches. Jesus says, bless the poor. He feeds the poor, he blesses the poor. Jesus says, no, sir, and he shows him. And then he shows him by following his own path to the cross. Ah, so Peter that had the right answer, Peter that heard the call to follow, Peter that saw in the garden all these things about blessing those who persecute you and loving your enemies, he sees it modeled. Then he hears those who must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Then he sees Jesus on the pathway to the execution. But he also denied him. So there's still this process, but he still has the example to follow. Acts 2, like the first four chapters of Acts, are some of my favorites. And let's see Peter's journey. He's not a lost cause. Would you flip over a couple books to Acts? Peter knows that Jesus has been crucified. He's hopeless. He finds him raised. And in Acts chapter 2, we just celebrated on the church calendar, the Holy Spirit comes. The helper that Jesus talked about comes. And, and Peter's empowered. And he's speaking and he's preaching. And 3,000 people, he said, the Jesus that you crucified, God has made Lord and Savior. He is the King. He is the promised one. And he preaches and it's awesome. And the Holy Spirit's power is with him. And not only in word, but Peter in Acts chapter 3, uh, he, he sees a lame guy who can't walk. And he says, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up, walk. And this dude gets up and walks. This is bad to the bone stuff. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 4. Peter is, look, did Jesus heal blind people and lame people? Easy answer, yes. Here's Peter with the power of the Holy Spirit following Jesus. Am I beating the dead horse yet? Well, here, let's keep going. Acts chapter 4, let's read in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they just put him in jail until the next day. Verse 4, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Not bad for a couple weeks and being in jail, dude. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this man stands before you 
healed. Jesus, as we read a couple weeks ago in Mark, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Peter is getting thrown in jail. And then Peter is going to, at the end of his life, if you'll flip a little bit further to the back of your New Testament as we start to wind down, Peter writes a little letter to a bunch of people who are getting persecuted, who are trying to follow Jesus and are just having their lights punched out. And this Peter, who was in the garden with Jesus, who cut a dude's ear off, who preached this sermon through the Holy Spirit in which 3,000 were saved, he healed a guy in the name of Jesus because he was following what Jesus was up to. He writes this. Peter, in and out of jail for the rest of his life, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Watch. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Don't miss the context of suffering. He's going to go through now, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He says, when you suffer, guess what? Jesus suffered, and he left you the example on how to suffer. So here's where we tie everything together. When we simply worship Jesus and put him on the margins of our life as some ticket to heaven or some nifty thing we believe that has only anything to do with Saturday nights, when we put him out there on the margins, we don't suffer well, We don't love well. We don't bless the poor well. We don't abstain from the destructive habits in our lives well. We don't follow him through the cross. What happens when we're worshipers of Jesus at a distance? We're called to be followers close to Jesus and we worship as we follow Because if your beliefs don't work their way out into your life, you don't really know Jesus. And I don't tell you that to freak you out. But if it freaks you out, you might need to get to know Jesus. Okay? And it starts with the confession. But the Spirit comes and works in your life the strength to follow Him in His steps through suffering and through the cross and these things. But may we not be worshipers of Jesus at a distance. May we be close followers because that's who the disciples were. That's who Peter was. It's like that silly meatloaf song back in the day. Did y'all think I was going to close with meatloaf? (laughs) I would do anything for love. This dude knows what's up. But I won't do that. When we know Jesus, we can suffer like Jesus suffered. And you don't have to do it alone, like I say in this church all the time. Jesus, I would do anything for you, but I won't give you this. 
Jesus, I'll do anything for you, but I won't give up this sin or stuff or whatever else. May we be people who don't just say the right things, but we walk in the way that Jesus walked. We come to the table as people like Peter who don't always get it right. And we come to the table as people who um, know the right things a lot of the times, but we just can't seem to do it right. So let's pray. We're going to sing. We're going to come to the table in which we symbolize the death, the cross, and we take into our bodies that very death, that very cross, remembering that he died to reconcile us to God the Father. And we can come to him broken, beaten, sad, suffered, angry, and we can find the Jesus who smiles at us. Because we're going to talk about next week how we read the Bible and how we look at Jesus. And we're going to look at what that means in the life of our church and religion and these sorts of things. But it all hangs on Jesus. We're all about Jesus as a church. And may we be people who follow him. Let's pray and let's receive this supper. Father, we're grateful that you didn't just give us a book, you gave us a living, breathing son to show us how to live, to teach us. May we be people who take his word seriously. May we be people who take his example seriously. And may we be people who carry him with us into our workplaces, our homes, those places in which you've called us. May we choose to do what Jesus would do if he were in our shoes at school at work, in the car, on the job, at the dinner table. May we look to him and may we know him and may we have the strength to follow him. For he is our example, our teacher, our friend, our redeemer, and he is our Lord. So bless us tonight. In your grace, would you give us strength to turn away from those destructive things and to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. May we learn to love you more and learn to love our neighbor as ourself. And may we learn from this stream of people who suffered well and suffered not always getting it right, not always saying the right things, but who attempted to follow Jesus. It's through him we pray. Amen.